0: we should be broadening our palates and broadening our understanding of what's possible in the world of food. And it's an exciting way to think about food. It's what every culture and cuisine has done since the beginning of time, used offcuts, used scraps to create deliciousness. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And that was Dan
1: Barber, chef and co-owner of Blue Hill Farm. On this podcast and in Washington, D.C., we often look at how regulations and rules and legislation shape healthcare. care. The connection between nutrition and health is often overlooked. So when I sat down with Dan Barber a few weeks ago at the Milken Institute Future of Health Summit, I had a lot of questions about what we need to know about the connection between what we eat and how healthy we are. And as you'll hear, I'm not someone who spends a lot of time at fancy restaurants, so I did not realize how much of a celebrity chef Dan Barber was until after we did this podcast, where I've seen the local salad chain Sweet Cream roll out new products with him. Apparently, he's been on TV shows like Chef's Table on Netflix. It was a really enjoyable conversation, and it broadened how I think about health. I hope you'll find value in it, too. But first, a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, you can help us. If you rate the show, review it, send tips to me at ddiamond at politico.com for future guests. And with that, here's my conversation with Dan Barber. Chef Dan Barber, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. You are a chef in New York City. You have been known to serve people food that other chefs have thrown away. Why do you think we should be eating garbage?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that, that it's been said of me before that, yeah, that I like to rummage through the trash and, and make a plate of food out of it. The truth is, I started this project called Wasted, which was a, a pop-up devoted only to food waste, only kind of things that you throw away. But actually, every chef that I know, they use scraps. They use uncoveted cuts. They use stuff that's damaged. And through culinary artistry and craftsmanship and a little bit of magic, we create delicious, hedonistic pleasure through food. That's like what all chefs do. So I I did this pop-up mainly because I wanted to shine a light and wear on the sleeve what chefs do every day. We just don't, don't call it food waste. Like I just got off the phone with my kitchen. Tonight we are serving braised lamb that is off cuts from last night's service this is stuff that we didn't sell last night right we braised the lamb we have it we're going to chop it up and we're going to fill it in a ravioli and we're serving it with some fall early fall root vegetables those are root vegetables that weren't sold last night that we're cutting in a different way and so we're calling it uh fall lamb ravioli with uh, root vegetables but another way i could title the dish is is food waste um, but you know, if I titled that I wouldn't sell. So I wanted to create a pop-up where we wore on our sleeve what we do every day. And, and basically like to inculcate the idea that, we should be broadening our palates and broadening our understanding of what's possible in the world of food. And it's an exciting way to think about food. It's what every culture and cuisine has done since the beginning of time. Used offcuts, used scraps to create deliciousness.
1: And when you say we should be broadening our thinking, is, yeah. is we professional chefs? Is yes, we everybody? Be, yeah,
0: I think we professional chefs, I put the burden on us because I believe in this like, trickle-down idea. And I don't I don't say that in the Republican sense. I say you don't it the, strike
1: me as a Reaganomic yeah. uh, economist. <laughs> no, professor.
0: right. I'm more in like the idea that that the ideas that come out of fine dining kitchens tend to bleed into the everyday food culture. What's an
1: example of that?
0: Uh, Greek yogurt, quinoa, sushi. The whole burger craze. I mean, these are ideas that started with fine dining chefs. I mean, one, one could say the whole fast casual revolution that's happening and what's happening in supermarkets. I mean, look what's happening. In, look what's happening in food, just, just general food. It, you know, in the last five years has turned upside down. You know, the middle aisles of supermarkets, frozen foods, packaged foods, there's a general awareness that what we've been eating, what's been sold to us over the last 30 years is a sham. How is the idea
1: of, of food waste, of using these, these leftovers and other people's trash, trickling down to the American kitchen. Are we still five years away from that? Is that somewhere we need to be right now, given sustainability
0: concerns? Yeah, well, 40% of what we produce... In in the field and through the processing centers, wasted it's forty percent of what's produced. I mean, that's a staggering number when we think about feeding a growing population and doing it equitably and democratizing, you know, delicious food and also nutritious food. So part of the reason that I launched the the Wasted Project and I'm interested in it is is to raise awareness and consciousness of it. Does that automatically translate into your dinner at home tonight? I don't know. I mean, I could the the tangible example that comes to mind is supermarkets. Are now offering bruised fruits and vegetables as a separate section of the of the supermarket. So, so they're wearing on their sleeve what they used to hide and actually used to throw away either compost or throw away outright. And now there's a market because of a raised consciousness. That to me, I, I think that's a great first step. It's being touted through these supermarkets. It's like you know the next hot thing that that is going to save the world. I'm a little skeptical of that, but it's a move in the right direction. Why did you start doing
1: this in the first place? Was it a path that was indirect. Was it something you always knew that this is where you wanted to end up?
0: Cooking or food waste. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's start with cooking. Yeah, and then get into. No, your... I
0: got into cooking by accident. You know, I my mother passed away when I was very young, and I I like started to overcompensate at a young age for like just just cooking in general and and preparing my meals. And I wanted to be a writer. I was earning some extra money by by cooking. So I had a little bit of talent in cooking, not that much in writing, and and I just. I kept going with it and sort of the cooking supported my real love which is writing. I so, should tell you yeah. Politico has job openings. Thank you. Well, it's never too late here. So I'm I'm actually pretty deep into it now obviously, but I but yeah, my first love was writing. And politics. I was I was a poli sci major. I studied here in Washington D.C. What are the what are the politics of food? Right yeah. Now? Well, so that's, you know, that's a that's a good broad question, but um Right, right now, in the moment that we're sitting in, um, you know, there's this great divide. As as there is a great divide in a lot of our politics, but there's a there's an exciting social movement afoot over the last twenty years, and it's called the farm to table movement. It's called good food movement, clean food. I I rope in organic food in there too. Are um, there's that, all
1: different ways of saying the same
0: thing? I, well, yeah, there are different iterations of, of the same thing, that people want to know more about where their food's coming from and who's producing it and how it's getting to them. These are all questions that weren't being asked 20 years ago. That's being driven a lot by millennials, but it's, it's, it's a movement, and, and it's probably the most exciting social movement that's happening today. I mean, I don't think you can name something else that carries with it such energy and passion because, because it's rooted in pleasure and hedonism. And, and delight and the health connections to good food and, and flavor is, is absolute. And so there's, there's just a nice correspondence between doing well for the world, well for yourself, and being hedonistic in the process. I mean, what movement asks you to be greedy for something? Any other movement that I, that I can think of just off the, like, asks you to give up something, the environmental movement. I mean, part of the problem is that you're, you have to give up stuff. The and food people don't movement. And food movement. Yeah. Yeah. The food movement's all about pleasure. And that's one thing, you know, that Americans are quite good at is pleasure. It's like being greedy and, and, and figuring out a way to pay a little bit more for something that's truly delicious and pleasurable is, is, you know, it's a very powerful currency.
1: When I'm in the grocery store, and I'm not coming from a place of total ignorance, I'm a, I'm a healthcare writer, but I'm, I'm purchasing organic food with a higher price because I know on some level, I, I know in quotes that this is supposed to be better for me. But, but is it really? if something is raised, if if chicken is raised in a more
0: sustainable environment, how
1: much does that really
0: matter? To your health or to the health of the environment? both well I'm glad you said both because they're one and the same and so let's just take a carrot that I was working with last night it was particularly delicious so it's on my mind you were working with a carrot well I was working with a new crop of carrots that I'm very excited about this Bravura carrot that I I love it's called a mokum carrot and it's it's really a stunning example of like what's possible for a carrot it's like it's really it's like carrot times 50 it's like you have this thing and you like keep tasting carrot after you 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 finish the dish it's like it's, it's just amazing uh, so I'm excited for this fall because it's a particularly good crop. But, but part of the reason that the the carrot's so memorable, I'm thinking about it today, is because not just because of the genetics, and we should talk about that, but part of it is that it's grown in the right kind of soil. Um, and so the decisions that a farmer is making to get a carrot to grow organically is really about uh, a negotiation with the landscape to figure out what does the soil need, what kind of fertility does the soil need, to get this carrot to express what i just described as this this amazing flavor when you're in a conventional system you don't think about growing carrots that way you don't need to because you have interventions along the way and the interventions are pesticides pesticides or, or fertilizers in an organic system you have to figure out well, what am i going to plant before the carrot gets into the ground what kind of fertility am i going to lock and load into the soil that the carrot's going to soak up and express through great flavor and great nutrition great flavor is flavonoids. Flavonoids are nutrition. That the the idea that you could have a truly jaw-droppingly delicious carrot and not have it be filled with incredible nutrient density is impossible. And so that's that's what gets me about that. that's what gets me about an organic. So when you're at the supermarket facing, you know, the choice between paying a little bit extra for organic, it's really about a system of agriculture that that one needs to think about to to um, to eke out the kind of nutrition and flavor that we're talking about in a conventional system that's not it's not the barometer and and the interventions are a fast way to get you a full sized carrot cheaper uh, definitely for sure, but what it lacks is real nutrition and and that's expressed through flavor
1: I used to care so much more about what I ate, yeah these mm-hmm. days I find myself using food as as fuel. Oh. The first thing I ate today That's a was,
0: dangerous concept, food as fuel, as you're sitting with a package of potato chips in front of you. Well,
1: my, the first thing I ate today was a cookie at 1 o'clock, yeah. and now I'm snacking on Pringles, and it's, right. it's pushing 5 p.m.
0: Right. But how do you how do you yourself account for that in terms of the correspondence between your, your your push for health and diet and a diet like that? I mean, what what where do you where does that rack up in your mind? I, I
1: would say that eating cookies and chips are, it's very unusual for me. Normally, I'm popping into sweet green for lunch, nice. but but the way that I interact with food now. Is it secondary to whatever other goal I have that day, as I run from interview to interview or I'm yeah. working on a story? Yeah. And and when you talk about the pleasures of food, yeah. it is hard for me to hear. Right. The value in that. Am I
0: wrong? Am I am I hurting myself in some way that I'm not realizing? Well, it's a. I mean, that's a good. Good question, and I hope you answer it fully before you get too old and realize that looking back, you 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 wasted all this time eating, you know, potato chips and cookies, and didn't Again, take it. Yeah. it's a one off. Right? Okay, it's sure, I shouldn't cookies. hang. I shouldn't hang you up on that. No, I mean, you know, it's it's. I think what you're talking about is priorities. You know, who who? Uh, let me put it to you this way. Did you check your email today? Did you check your, your phone for your tweets? Did you check Instagram? You probably did. And you if you're like most Americans, yeah. you probably did. So what that says to me is that there is a culture within you and around you that really values that time and that experience, that engagement. I'm not belittling it at all. I'm saying this, that's what the culture is dictating. And my job as a chef, I think one of my jobs as a chef, is to raise the bar on the cultural importance not just of of the, you know your social media but of food and and th- we're headed in that direction i mean that's not it sounds sort of fanciful but it actually sort of isn't it's like you know if you think about that 20 years ago like or even 10 years ago the idea that that millennials would be so obsessed with food and it, some some of it takes the form of instagram social media but a lot of it is like truly driven by by pleasure and ethics and that's that's a sea change in the culture and it's to me it's a very exciting way to think about the future of food because i don't think you go back a little bit like like gay marriage legislation. It's not like we're going back to like less gay marriage, you know. And well, it
1: depends who you ask in Washington. Yeah. Okay. Which but, member but, of the administration it, you talk but, to?
0: Yeah. But that's but even that would that sort of answers my question. It's like that's the wrong people to ask. It's like the culture is is shifting, and and yeah, we may go zigzaggy for sure. I mean, it's not a through line, but ultimately, it's like we're headed in a direction that's inevitable. I think that's the same with food. Because once you have the pleasure of good food, you don't want to go back.
1: We've talked about the pleasure, the, the benefits or yeah. trade-offs for you, for me. Taking it beyond us, in a warming world,
0: yeah. how much
1: does it matter for farming to be sustainable, for our food production and consumption to be radically different than what it is today? The way we
0: raise cows and chickens accounts for more carbon emissions than planes, trains, and automobiles combined. So I would say that if that's the case, we have to rethink how we eat proteins. Who says that we deserve, and where did the expectation for protein-centric plates of food come from? Where is that? That's a cultural norm. I mean, that's, not, that's, that's actually an incredible aberration. If you look at the history of cuisine and cultures around the world, nobody does what we do, what we demand out of a plate of food, nobody. Nobody in the history of the world. It's actually quite a new idea. It's the last 100 years. And, and unfortunately, we're exporting that idea to the rest of the world. I keep coming back to this cultural idea because I think that's what drives change. And so as a chef, my interest, my, my shiv into this whole thing is to, is to change the culture, is to, is to shift that architecture of a plate of food.
1: You were on President Obama's Council of Sports, Fitness, Nutrition. The Obama administration, the the president and the first lady especially, were advocates for healthy eating, for exercise, for issues that presumably line up with things that you believe. Looking back on their time in office, if you were to give the administration a grade on the sorts of reforms that you would want to see, what would you grade
0: them? I I cooked for the president and the first lady, the, the, the two days before they were inaugurated. It was their last meal in Chicago in their, in their home.
1: January 2009?
0: Uh, oh Yeah, 2009. And I remember sitting around a table, not much bigger than this, and we were talking about food policy, and the, the, the president um, said, you know, I love these ideas that you're talking about, but I'm not going near this. And he went on to talk about the red states and the the control that the republicans mainly have where most of our food is produced it's mostly grain 70 percent of our agriculture is in grain most of it is tied up in corporate agriculture most of it is intimately linked that is mostly intimately linked with the republican control of these red states he's like i'm just i'm not going i can't what he said to me is i can't touch that and i remember thinking at that moment we were this far away from each other and i remember looking at him and thinking you right now have like a 99% approval rating. <laughs> like next to Jesus Christ, I don't know that there's another political figure that has more power. And you're literally turning to me and saying, I'm scared of those guys. I can't go near them. It, to be fair, he didn't say scared, but scared in the political sense of like, I don't want to waste political capital because that will never budge. That being the entrenchment of the kind of agriculture system that is was prevalent Nine years ago, and to a certain degree, is still very prevalent today. Do, do you think what, he was making an excuse? What? Well, I, that's a very interesting question. But I'll just finish the the story by saying, he turned to Michelle, his wife, and he said, "But you can do this because it needs to come apolitical and it needs to come out of a sense of pleasure." Which is really, I mean, he didn't use the word pleasure, but he, but but apolitical is you know, not mired in the politics. To so, to say, you know, were they successful or not? I, of course, we were all disappointed in the end of how legislation changed the farm bill, etc. But I think the the overwhelming uh, takeaway from those eight years was that this is a cultural message, and that's what's going to drive change. And that his intuition was exactly right. And so, yes, maybe it was an excuse. I, I maybe 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 not. I don't know. I think it was a nod to reality. What he said. What he said. Actually, you know, I dropped my um, my phone uh, in the bathroom, and. Uh, when I was like during cooking the meal, I didn't even know it. And I went out. Uh,
1: this is in his Chicago home. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I went out after the meal. I was clearing, you know, packed up the car and I was on my phone. So I went back in the house and he was standing there having a glass of orange juice. I'll never forget this in his pajamas. And I got my phone. And on the way out, he came up very close to my face and he said, I believe in what you're saying. I understand we have big problems with agriculture and food keep advocating for what you're talking about, and make me make the changes that you're talking about. Don't rely on me to, to to be out in front of this. Make me make the changes. It was a very powerful way to express the political reality, which is like, you don't lead these things. The culture shifts it. Donald
1: Trump has a Different relationship with food, food and yeah. exercise. Yeah, yeah. If you were trying to make the case to him, if you had five minutes with President Trump, what would you be telling him now?
0: I would go to just the Republican, I, I, to Trump or to any you know conservative Republican who is looking to wean our country off of needless subsidies. To allow farmers to not be tied down to government control. I mean, that's what this comes down to. It's like a lot of the food system is dictated by what the government pours into subsidies and 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 political machinations that solidify the cheap food system that we have. If we were to truly create an open marketplace for food production, truly do that, I think it would it would end up allowing the real interests of the this social movement to have legs in Washington, and to and I think it's going to happen eventually because it's, like I said, I think it bleeds into the culture and it's the long game. But I think it would happen a lot faster if we adopted some of the tenets of, of true republicanism, which is which is hands off government. We don't have that at all. We have a, a colossal control of our food system through through government regulation and through through government control and through subsidies, which control the food system. That's what I would appeal to that side of it. It really is a Republican issue. So in my
1: world as a healthcare reporter, I find myself increasingly coming up against large corporations, large systems, hospital super systems, insurance companies that are going through mega mergers, and so on and so on. And I've I've talked to people in the field about increasing control shifting to a smaller and smaller handful of power players.
0: Is it similar to that? In, in the food industry. Ve- very nice analogy. By the way, the people that you generally talk to are interventionists. And what I would prefer to talk about is prevention. Because intervention in the healthcare realm is where the money goes and where the technology goes and where the, the funding goes and the interests. You know, it's how can you create the next drug that eradicates a certain disease or or, or solves a problem. But we rarely think about going to the source of of disease. And and long-term degenerative disease is diet related. We've known that now for decades. And there is nothing, nothing that is healthier for us than a uh, long-term devotion to good food. My premise of that isn't organic. Actually, it actually goes before organic. It's in the seeds. And we are developing seeds in this country that are meant for intervention through agriculture, which is chemicals. So we are we are breeding for sick plants. In other words, there are three companies right now that control seventy percent of the future of our seed supply. That means all new seeds that are developed this year will come out of three companies. Which three? Syngenta, Monsanto, and Chem Chem China. And, and hundred years ago, there were you know the three companies controlled like three percent. All three companies I just mentioned are chemical companies. They're actually not seed companies. They they own seed comp they are part of they they create seeds, but they make their money not on the seeds because no one makes money on seeds. You make their money on the intervention, on the chemicals. In the same way that our healthcare system makes its money in the intervention. And so there's the analogy. And in my mind, the greatest thing I've learned from a healthful agriculture system, which produces tasty and delicious food, is about going to the source. And the source is the soil, but even before, because we talked a little about the soil, even before the soil, it's about creating seeds that have the genetics to express a suite of flavors, which are the flavonoids, which which is the nutrient density. And we are breeding against that. We're breeding against that because we want yield and because essentially we want weak plants, that require the kind of intervention that these companies can provide, and that's where the profit is. I'm not saying that as a as a far out liberal, you know, corporate control. I'm just saying it as reality. That is stripped of any any. I mean, I have passions in this area, but that's that's right down to the reality.
1: Is there a political figure currently in office that you think gets this right?
0: I think there are people at the USDA that I mean, who talks about the USDA in in glowing terms. But I just think there are people that I talk to uh, from time to time uh, that are just incredible. Um, so these are policy
1: folks at the yeah, Department yeah, of Yeah,
0: sorry. So, 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 right. I'm sorry. So they're not—they're they're mid-level. I guess you would call the mid-level. Um, but they, they really are working towards the betterment of of farmers and farming. Um, and they are they are handcuffed. But their ideas are amazing. But on the political level, on the high political level, I can't think of one right now. No.
1: We're we're coming up on the Thanksgiving holiday yeah. as we sit down to record this.
0: Is there such a thing, Chef, as a healthy
1: Thanksgiving meal?
0: Yeah. Totally, yeah. I mean, what I don't get the idea. I read these things about people going on like healthful Thanksgivings with replacing turkey with vegetable duckins or something. I don't know. I don't get it. I no. I think what's wrong with with I mean, look, you have typical. Uh, Thanksgiving meal is if you can get a turkey that's been on pasture I think that's like one of the more healthy poultry's you can eat Uh, true pasture means it's moved around and exercised its muscles and oxygenated the muscles and got true flavor and all the antioxidants that go along with that Uh, and you have some root vegetables uh, and some greens, some kale, some winter hardy kale in this area where we're talking. That's a very delicious spread. It may be, um, uh, you know, a little bit of overabundance, but that's part of the joy and and, and tradition of the holiday.
1: What are you going to eat on Thanksgiving? Well,
0: just that. I just name my fa- Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, I mean, I like I I I don't. I'm pretty traditional. I like the the root vegetables, the potato or whatnot, and got a green in there and. Yeah, I mean, and and the, and the turkey that's that's on Pastra, I think, is the key component to, to a really delicious Thanksgiving.
1: Chef Dan Barber, thank you so much for joining Politico's Pulse Check.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Mikaela Rodriguez, Adrian Hurst, and Jenny Ament for producing the podcast, and Milken Institute for finding space and time for this conversation with Dan Barber. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps, You can find me at at ddiamondatpolitico.com, and you can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player very soon.